Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7? We are in Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we find ourselves in a a three-chapter section known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. We are in chapter 7 this morning. And we come to a couple of verses that are probably some of the most quoted in the entire sermon, possibly in the entire Bible. And they are Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Let's read them together. Where Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, once again, remember, Jesus Christ is not directing this sermon to the multitudes in general. He is directing it at his disciples in particular, teaching them, and of course all of us who are his disciples, the principles of kingdom living. The world cannot live this way. Some people in the world applaud the Sermon on the Mount as giving us a wonderful ethic to live our lives by. The problem is people who are unsaved can't live by this ethic Uh, on a constant basis. So this is for Jesus' disciples. We learn that at the beginning of chapter 5 when it says he called his disciples away uh, from the multitudes and took them to a place overlooking the Sea of Galilee on top of a mount and there he gave them this sermon. Now as such, verse 12 of chapter 7 becomes the summation and climax of everything the Lord has been saying in this sermon to his disciples. Let me paraphrase. He said, however you want people to treat you, treat them that way also. This condenses all that God has said with regard to human relationships into one supreme principle. Now, the rest of the sermon becomes a lengthy postscript. From verses 13 through 28 becomes a lengthy postscript consisting of a series of warnings designed to challenge any of his disciples who were listening to him on that day that really had not made a genuine commitment to him as their Lord and Savior. This was designed by Jesus, this last section, to challenge them to examine themselves. We know that there were a lot of people who attached themselves to Jesus and called themselves his disciples. And yet, at different points in his ministry, they split. John 6 is a classic uh, passage that I think about. When after he talked to them about the real cost of discipleship, it says, many went away and followed him no more. Jesus had a lot of groupies, for lack of a better term. You know, he was the prophet in town, and people want to be associated with, you know, the celebrity. Now, many of the people that connected themselves to him had the right heart and became true disciples. But then there were always those that connected themselves to Jesus out of the wrong heart, out of the wrong motivation, looking to get something from him, not really willing to lay down their lives for him. And if you notice in the gospel, he was constantly chasing those folks away. I mean, he, he wound up chasing more people away than ever wound up following him. Because Jesus was not into numbers per se, he was into hearts. He wanted people who were following him for the right reasons. So not everybody who followed Jesus and called themselves his disciples were necessarily true disciples. Just like not everybody today who goes to church and 
and calls Jesus Lord is necessarily a true Christian. Something that Jesus plainly declared in verse 21 when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. When it comes to verses 13 and 14, as one author noted, and I'm quoting now, he said, There are few words that Jesus spoke that are more forceful than these in attacking the shallow, lukewarm, casual approach to salvation that we see so much today in the church. End quote. If verse 12 becomes the climax for true Christians, then listen, verses 13 and 14 bring the Sermon on the Mount to its evangelistic climax and application. I mean, phony Christians and the body of Christ is loaded with them. They don't think they're phony. Uh, some of them might. I don't know. I mean, some of them are playing games and they know it. Maybe they're. I've seen guys come into church and act like Christians because they don't want to win over some gal or, or they want to sell us Amway or something like that. I mean, so there are people that come to church that really aren't Christians. Not that the folks that sell Amway are not real Christians. I don't know. So, so you know, some of them know they're, they're phonies, all right? But the vast majority think they're right on with the Lord. And it's these folks that Jesus stops now after he brings the sermon to its climax in verse 12 for his true disciples. Then as any good preacher, you can't get any better than Jesus. He understood, even as I understand, in this congregation, in this church, we have many genuine disciples of Christ. But we also have some people that have not made that commitment yet. Some of them know they haven't. They're just checking things out, hearing what the Bible has to say, seeing how we live our lives and so on, and that's fine. It's all part of it. But some, uh, some people have really believed that they have made a commitment to Christ, and yet they really haven't. And so Jesus wants to direct the rest of the sermon at these folks. He wants to, to really cause them. And he's going to say some pretty blunt things. Because he's not about sweet-talking anybody. He's about piercing hearts because he wants to change lives. He wants everyone that calls in his name to go to heaven. And he wants to challenge those who are playing games, who maybe think they're genuine, but they're not. He wants to show them that, you know what, sometimes you can think you're genuine, and really you've been deceived by the devil and detoured down a counterfeit path that will lead not to heaven but to destruction. Keep that in mind when we study verses 13 and 14. Now, before we do that, let me just say this. There are many people that want to kind of stand back and um, admire the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Look, Jesus doesn't want his words admired. He wants them acted on. And that is the whole point of verses 13 and 14. They are a call to action. All right? They are a call to action. To stop playing games and start really examining your own heart. As Peter said, examine your heart to make sure that you're really in the faith. You're really a Christian. Paul said, judge yourself now. You won't have to be judged by God someday. Examine your heart. Are you real? Are you playing games? What is it? All right. So Jesus wasn't worried about people admiring his sermon or applauding his sermon. He wanted people that applied his sermon. That's what verses 13 and 14 are all about. You realize, of course, that hell is going to be loaded with people who admired this sermon, but who never applied verses 13 and 14 into their lives as a warning to be heeded. 
and not as some kind of a platitude to be applauded. Every person has to decide for themselves which way they are going to go in life. Salvation is a choice that every person has to make for themselves. And listen, folks, it is the most important decision you will ever have to make in your life because it is the only decision that has eternal consequences attached to it. And that makes it more important than anything. All right? Nothing is worth your eternal soul. Even if you gain the entire world, as Jesus said, it isn't worth your eternity. Yeah, how many people are making that trade every day? Jesus stands at the door of every person's heart and knocks. Revelation 3.20, right? It's up to us to decide whether or not to open the door of our hearts and let them in. And that choice, whether or not to open your heart to Christ, is really, in essence, the same choice he is telling us here by choosing what road you're going to walk down in life. Folks, this is the gospel presented in its simplest terms possible. Verses 13 and 14. Uh, In these verses, the Lord speaks here of two gates, one great, the other small. Two ways, one broad, the other narrow. Two destinations, one is life, the other is destruction. Two crowds, the few and the many. And he continues on to the rest of the chapter. He talks about two kinds of trees, one good, the other corrupt. Two kinds of fruit, one good and the other bad. Two kinds of builders, one wise, the other foolish. Two kinds of foundations, one rock, the other sand. And two kinds of houses, one that stands and the other that falls. He is presenting to us in the clearest way possible, you have to make a choice, right? The Lord Jesus Christ has brought people to the crossroads of life and said, now look, you've got to choose which way you're going to go. Which way you're going to go. I mean, it's reminiscent of what Moses did and how he presented the same choice, really, uh, to the people in his day, the children of Israel, when he challenged them by saying, and I'm quoting out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he said to the people, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. If you read the whole passage in Deuteronomy 30, he is pressing upon them this very idea. Are you going to be committed to God or not? Are you going to obey the Lord or not? Are you going to follow him with all your heart or are you not? Because if you don't, it's death. If you do, it's life. Choose life that you may live, right? Both you and your descendants that they may live. Well, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ went on to do in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 28. Impressing upon them, look, the need to demonstrate the genuineness of their faith through obedience. And we'll see that as we go. Let's look at these. First of all, the Lord talks about two gates. And in the beginning of verse 13, he says, Enter by the what? Narrow gate. In the Greek, he uses a, a form of a verb that implies a sense of urgency. He's saying, Enter the narrow gate. Do it now. Do it now. Don't put it off. Enter the narrow gate, but do it now. And again, it's not enough just to stand back and admire or appreciate the gate. A person must enter it if they are to be benefited by it. Who is the gate? What is the gate? Well, the gate is very simply the Lord Jesus. He's the narrow gate. And there are a lot of people who go to church, I'm talking about Christian churches now, that admire Jesus. And in fact, they believe everything about Him that we do. 
I mean, they believe he's the son of God. They believe he died for their sins. They believe on the third day he rose again from the dead. They believe he has come to save them from their sins. And yet they're not going to heaven. Why? Because they believe with their head they have not committed their lives to him. As the old saying goes, a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between their heads and their hearts. It's not enough to just give mental assent to these facts about Christ. The devil believes and trembles. And he's not going to heaven. He believes everything we believe about Jesus Christ. Why isn't he going to heaven? Because he has not. He never did submit his life to the lordship of Christ. He rebelled. He's a rebel. And the idea is that Jesus Christ, though, is the narrow gate, and he will only benefit you if you enter by him. Now, I'll give you some scriptures, and you can just write these down. I'll just read them to you. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. And he's talking about the door to salvation, to heaven. If anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved, right? Anyone who tries to come into heaven any other way, Jesus said the same as a thief and a robber. He's the only door that leads to eternal life. In John 14, verse 6, the night before the cross, Jesus in the upper room said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, I didn't say that. He did. I believe it because he said it. But in this very tolerant society we're living in, that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. In fact, I've actually heard Christians actually get around that, try to get around that whole idea. As simple and basic as it is, they try to mean, no, no, Jesus didn't really mean that. Well, I don't know what else he meant. I mean, it's pretty clear to me I'm the only way into heaven. If you don't come through me, you don't get there. And of course, Peter echoed this in Acts 4, verse 12, when he said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so again, Jesus Christ is the narrow gate, the only way into heaven. Now, it's very important that we understand something here. As Jesus contrasts the the broad way with the narrow way, understand something. He is not contrasting religion with atheism or humanism or materialism or hedonism or secularism. He is not contrasting religion with non-religion. He is contrasting, listen, true religion with false religion. Very important point. I mean, both of these roads claim to lead to God. The white gate isn't marked this way to hell. It's labeled this way to heaven, just like the narrow gate. But Jesus is warning us here to beware because that's not where this gate, the broad gate or the broad way leads to. It doesn't lead to God. doesn't lead to heaven even though it's marked that way. You see, Satan is a master deceiver. Even disguising himself as an angel of light to deceive. Satan knows that most people in this world are not going to be atheists. I mean, he would love them to be, but they're not going to be atheists. They inherently want to believe in something. And so he says, fine, I, you want to believe in something? Great. I'll give you all kinds of stuff to believe in as long as it's not the truth. And this idea that it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you're sincere, the Bible doesn't teach that. God doesn't account sincerity for righteousness. He counts true faith for righteousness. And so it's very important that we understand that Satan does some of his best work through religion through religion. And as such, he's the one who paints this way to God in heaven over his broad gate. And Jesus said, there are many who go in through that gate. 
You know, as we've been pointing out, as we've been talking now about how Jesus is really contrasting true religion with false religion, as we have been going through this sermon, uh, all the way through we have been showing you that Jesus has been contrasting a lot of things that are true with those things that are false, right? And who has he always been holding up as the example of false faith, false works, false everything, all right? The scribes and Pharisees, right? Jesus is contrasting true faith with false faith. The narrow gate, as we've already said, represents Jesus in the gospel, whereas the broad gate represents the false religion of the scribes and Pharisees who were preaching a system of outward rituals, ceremonies, and good works as a way to gain access into heaven and to please God. And therefore, the broad way, listen to me now, the broad way is the path of human achievement and the narrow way is the path of divine accomplishment. Folks, there's only two religions in the entire world. Okay? The broad way, which is the path of human achievement. Every religion on the face of the planet except for Christianity falls into that category. Every religious system on the planet uh, tells people that you have to do certain things in order to win God's favor in order to earn your way into heaven or whatever place of paradise you happen to believe in. But every religion on the face of the planet is based on what, except for Christianity, is based on what you're going to do in the way of works to earn salvation. Only Christianity is built on divine accomplishment. Because only Christianity is built on the finished work of Jesus Christ. From the cross, Jesus Christ said, it is what? finished. It's done. I've paid the price. I've done all that needs to be done for you to gain entrance into heaven. Just believe on me. That's why, as we have said before, you could spell religion D-O. It's all about doing, right? Doing, doing, doing. In fact, the word religion comes from the Latin root, which basically means a duty or obligation. And that's what religion is. It's a bunch of rules that are your duty to observe, your obligation, you know. And those of us who grew up in, uh, like I did Roman Catholicism, you know, we may have gone to church and done some of those things. And when we did, we felt good because we had done our duty. Not that we enjoyed it so much or we looked forward to it. But we, you know, if we did it, we went to church, we felt good, we had done our obligation. That's religion. You can spell Christianity, D-O-N-E done because Jesus Christ did it all he paid the price all we need to do to go to heaven is to put our faith in him turn our lives over to his control he's our king now we are his slaves and when we do that we have eternal life at that very instant when Jesus talked about the narrow gate being the only way that leads to eternal life I found this interesting many commentators say the best modern uh, translation of narrow gate would be that of a turnstile. A turnstile. Which means only one person can pass through at a time, right? Do you ever go through a narrow turnstile and two of you try to get through? It doesn't work so well. It's kind of ugly. Only one person can pass through the turnstile that leads to heaven. No one gets to heaven as part of a group. You know, the Jews believe that. The Jews believed that they got into heaven as a group because all Jews were born with the blood of Abraham in their veins, of course. Therefore, they were nationally all saved. 
And God saved the Jews simply because they were descendants of Abraham. Just like there's a lot of folks today, churchgoers, that base the hope of their salvation on their denominational affiliation. What church they were born into. Jesus sets the record straight here by telling us that the gate that leads to heaven only admits one person at a time. Salvation is a personal decision that every person has to make for themselves. And listen, nobody can make that decision for you. Turn to John chapter 1 once. I want to show you something. Let me read to you what John said here to open up his gospel. Now he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, how he came to the Jews first. He came to his own, his own people, but the Jews did not receive him. And then in verse 12 of chapter 1, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, listen, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John is telling us that, look, you're not a Christian because of your bloodline. Right? It's not of blood. You don't become a Christian because your parents are Christians and you somehow inherit heaven through their faith because you're born into a Christian family. You are not a Christian because you're born a Catholic or a Lutheran or a Baptist. I mean, it's not something that's passed down through the bloodline as the Jews thought their salvation was. John also says it's not of the will of the flesh. You don't become a Christian because you purpose to try real hard to live a good life like a Christian would live. To live like Jesus taught us to live, all right? Some people think it's just raw determination and hard work that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide to be a Christian because I'm going to work at it. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be like Jesus and so on. And guess what? There is no way you can live that life because it's a supernatural life that you have to have the Holy Spirit inside you to live that way. There are people that think, well, yeah, I've got to do all these good things to get to heaven, but I also have to punish myself. So you have the asceticism in many church circles. In fact, in medieval times, it was really bad. People would whip themselves and, and clamp sharp um, clamps on their bodies and draw blood because that's how you suffered to earn heaven. In fact, to this day in Mexico City, every Easter time, uh, people will whip themselves and crawl for miles on their knees uh, to a certain cathedral hoping to impress God and earn salvation. See, they are doing what the Bible says you can't do. It's not by the will of the flesh. Hard work and raw determination that you're a Christian. And thirdly, John said it's not of the will of man. Nobody becomes a Christian because a man like a priest pours water on you when you're an infant and declares you a Christian. Or you stand before a group of people. And, and you give your confirmation. And, and because you're a confirmation, they pronounce you a Christian. It is not through the will of men. It's only by the will of God. And how does God will that we be saved? Verse 12. As many as what? Received him, Jesus. To them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Believing that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, God incarnate, believing what he did for you on Calvary's cross and three days later, resurrecting from the dead and then receiving him as your Lord and Savior. That's how a person is saved. Look, entering the narrow gate, that's easy. 
that's easy. Walking its path, that's difficult. Entering into Jesus for salvation is easy. You believe on Him, receive Him as your Lord and Savior, that's easy. But then living for Jesus in a world that is hostile to Him and those who represent Him, that's not so easy. In fact, that's very difficult. And folks, it's getting more and more difficult every day. Jesus said in verse 14 of Matthew 7, He said, Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are few who find it. Why is that? Has God hidden it? You know, the Lord doesn't hide salvation. It's not like a divine Easter egg hunt, you know? Where he's got, you know, salvation hidden somewhere, and we're running around, you know, and he's going, you're getting warmer, you're getting all cold, cold, you know. Look, the reason people don't find the narrow gate, guess what, is because they're not looking for it. They're not looking for it. I mean, it's not because it's hidden. It's because the broad gate looks so much more appealing and inviting to them as does the narrow gate, so they don't even give the narrow gate the time of day, really. I mean, let's face it. If you are taught that all roads lead to God, right? doesn't matter what you believe or what religion you're involved in. It's all going to take us to the same spot. What religion are you going to pick? Probably the easiest one, right? I mean, it's, a, it's human nature to pick the path of least resistance. What, what am I going to follow Jesus for? And, and take all the persecution that comes from, from being exclusive when I say He's the only way. I mean, why would I going to take all that heat and be persecuted and tormented and maybe even uh, martyred? I mean, I'm going to choose a faith that is very tolerant, very inclusive, uh, non-confrontational. Everyone's going to love me and I still get to go to heaven. That's why people don't find the narrow gate. Because the broad gate is so much more appealing, so much more inviting, so much easier. The two gates will then lead to two ways. Two ways. First of all, Jesus mentions the broad way. For this, I'd like to quote something that pastor and author John MacArthur had to say about the broad way. He said, and I quote, The way that is broad is the easy, attractive, inclusive, indulgent, permissive, and self-oriented way of the world. There are few rules, few restrictions, and few requirements. All you need to do is profess Jesus, or at least be religious, and you are readily accepted into that large and diverse group. In this group, sin is tolerated, truth is moderated, and humility is ignored. God's word is praised but not studied, and his standards are admired but not followed. This way requires no spiritual maturity, no moral character, no commitment, and no sacrifice. It is the easy way of floating downstream with the current of the world, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, verse 2, when he said that those who are unbelievers are being carried along by the current of the world, the devil being the God of this world. He has organized this world and orchestrated this world to preach a certain value system and a philosophy, all designed to take people away from the truth. And so MacArthur said, you know what, that is the easy way of the Broadway. The sad thing about it is that those folks on the Broadway think it's the right way. And they really believe in their heart that they are on their way to God and to heaven. It reminds us of what Solomon said in Proverbs 16, verse 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof is the way of death. Well, the narrow way, in contrast to the broad way, is not easy. 
again, entering the narrow gate is easy. Just believe in Jesus. But walking its path is very difficult. It's as somebody has said, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. Isn't that true? When you think about that, it's everything we're talking about. Salvation is a free gift, but it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. Turn to Matthew 16 once, and I'll show you what Jesus said about this. And let's pick it up in verse 24, where Jesus is laying down the cost of true discipleship, what it really means. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And again, the Lord Jesus Christ is bringing his hearers to a point of decision, a crossroads. He is saying, look, in life, a person can choose to do one of two things. If they want to die to their life now for my sake, which means die to their own goals, their own desires, to give their life to me, to live for my goals, my kingdom, they may lose their life now, but they'll gain it for eternity. A person who says, you know what, I don't want to do that. I want to do my thing, man. I want to, I want to be rich. I want to go here. I want to do these things. I don't want God messing with me. I just want to do what I want to do. Jesus said, well, you can gain your life. You can keep your life and live it any way you want. But then you're going to lose it forever. And what is worth losing your eternal soul for? What possession, position, uh, what is there in this life that is worth eternity for and yet people make that trade every day don't they when they can only enjoy whatever it is for a short time and yet they're willing to give up eternity for some fleeting pleasures in time see the message that Jesus preached and not just in the Sermon on the Mount but all throughout the Gospels was never intended for those listen who simply wanted to add him to their life. Now I think of the rich young ruler, right? Matthew 19, here's a guy comes to Jesus, he's um, rich, he's young. Uh, he is a uh, ruler, which means he's a ruler of a synagogue. He's a religious guy, a very moral guy as we learn as we read the story. He comes to Jesus and says, you know, good master, I want to I have eternal life. What must I do? Now, Jesus, knowing that this guy was wealthy, the money, his money was on the throne of his heart, said to him, hey, look, give everything you own away, give it, give it to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have eternal life. Now, is Jesus saying that to get into heaven we all have to be poor? We can't own anything? No. He is putting his finger, in that, on that man's life, he's putting his finger on the one area that had control of his life. His money was on the throne. And Jesus says, as long as your money is on the throne of your life, I can never sit down there and be your king. So get rid of it. Now, to somebody else, he might say, you know what? Your, your desire for success or fame or something else is the thing you've got to give up before I can really sit down and take my rightful place. So with everybody, it's a little different. But here's a guy who, when Jesus laid out the cost then, he went away sorrowful, didn't receive Christ, because he had great riches and he wasn't willing to get rid of them. 
He was the guy that wanted to add Jesus to his life. Look, some people think that Jesus is kind of like the frosting on the cake of life. You know, He adds a little sweetness, but he's not the substance. Jesus doesn't want us to add him to our lives. He wants to become our life. And that's what real discipleship is all about. You know, Paul the Apostle said, Look, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I mean, Jesus is not looking to do a little makeover. He's looking to do a radical transformation. Okay? And Paul the Apostle said, Look, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man, what? Says? You could say a lot of right things about Jesus. Remember what Paul said to Titus? Many profess to know God, but by their lives they deny Him. Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, how he lives, will determine what he reaps. If he lives for the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. If he lives for God, the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Look, the Broadway makes no demands on a person's life. That's why it's so popular. But the narrow way is exactly the opposite. That's why so few choose to go down that road. In fact, the word narrow there, you see it there, the word narrow comes from a Greek root that means to groan. To groan. As from being under pressure caused by tribulation or adversity. Look, Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, these things I, he's talking to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The world's going to persecute you, but they can't do it forever. And someday you're going to be with me for all eternity. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Acts 14, verse 22. It says that Paul and Barnabas went through, I believe it was uh, the area of Galatia, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Look, anyone who tells you that receiving Christ is going to become, is going to be like uh, you know, one big um, party, you know, I mean, boy, receive Jesus and boy, you're going to have you're not going to have another bad day the rest of your life. Right. They're not being honest with you or they don't know what the gospel is all about. The narrow way is a is a way we, we groan quite a bit under the weight of pressure, adversity, tribulation. That's why when we get to heaven it says God finally wipes away every tear from our eyes. And there's no more tribulation or trouble or sorrow or whatever. In the world, though, we're going to have tribulation. Anyone who tries to tell a person, look, the gospel is all about God blessing you and giving you wonderful things and never having a bad day again, doesn't know the true gospel. All right, quickly. Two gates lead to two ways that end up in two destinations. Again, Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And then later he said, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. Destruction and life. And again, we're not all taking different roads to get to the same place. Jesus said there's actually two destinations. Two destinations. And they are both eternal. 
Again, there are those today who are trying to say hell is not real or hell is not eternal. That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ believed or taught. In Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus talked about those who would go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal or everlasting life. Those are the two destinations, and they are eternal, both of them. You cannot believe heaven is eternal, but say hell is not. There is no biblical justification for that. In fact, we see in Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus completely comes against that idea. Now, the word destruction in Matthew 7:13 does not mean extinction or annihilation, but total ruin and loss. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, It is the destination of all religions except the way of Jesus Christ, and it is a destiny for all those who follow any way but His. It is the destination and destiny of perdition, hell, and everlasting torment. And then he quotes Psalm 1, verse 6, The way of the wicked will perish. Yes, perish in hell. Where Jesus said there was going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. For how long? He said, where the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. You don't go there for a few years and get paroled. Once you're there, you're there forever. That's why Jesus Christ talked about hell more than he talked about heaven or even love. Because he knew hell was real and he didn't want anybody to go there. Look, a person can choose what gate they enter. That's your choice. The wide gate or the narrow gate. They can choose what gate they enter, but they can't choose the destination that gate's going to lead to. And then finally, we see two crowds, don't we? We see two crowds, two groups of people traveling these two roads. Jesus said concerning the wide gate, many are those who enter by it. As for the narrow gate, he said, few are those who find it. And the sad reality is that most religious people are headed for hell, not heaven. Jesus called his uh, true disciples a little flock. A little flock. The word little in the Greek is the word we get our English word micro from, meaning something very small. True believers have always been a small group in a world full of religious people. You know, there's a familiar saying. Maybe you've heard it, of course. Um, uh, the majority can't be wrong. You ever, ever heard that? You know, well, can the majority be wrong? Folks, the majority is seldom right, especially when it comes to spiritual things. Yes, in terms of salvation, we talk about salvation. Jesus said, yes, the majority is definitely wrong. They're dead wrong. Don't follow the crowd. Follow me, Jesus said. And yet many don't. Why? Because... The Broadway is the natural choice from a human point of view. Why is that? Because by nature, fallen sinners love darkness rather than light and will always choose sin rather than righteousness. Because Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And yet, the pride in the human heart blinds people into thinking that they can be good enough and actually often are good enough to make it into heaven on their own. And any talk that you try to reason with them, any talk of sin or coming judgment, you know what? Just makes them flat out angry. Because I'm a good person. Who are you to tell me, you know, that I'm not right with God and I love God and I go to church and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know what? I'm not challenging your love for God or you go to church. 
But again, that's not going to get you into heaven. I mean, I go to church now because I am saved. As a Roman Catholic, you know, I went to church once in a while. Okay. I didn't enjoy it, but I went. But now I love to go to church. Not because I get paid either. Okay. When I'm, when I'm on vacation, <laughs> when I'm not here and I'm on vacation, I still go to church with my family. Because we love to be in church worshiping the Lord and fellowshipping with God's people. That's a change that happens once Jesus comes inside through the Holy Spirit and gives you that new heart with new desires, right? But people, that when you try to tell people that, look, you're not good enough to make it into heaven. No one's good enough. Only one man was good enough to get to heaven. Jesus, by his good works. And the only way you're getting there is if you come through him. Boy, people get upset, don't they? I read a letter years ago. Years ago, uh, Dr. Billy Graham was down in Australia, uh, in Melbourne, uh, doing a crusade. And I think it went for five or six days. You know how that goes. They meet every night in the stadium and they have testimonies. And then eventually uh, Dr. Graham gets up and shares the gospel, right? And so because he was in town, it was a big deal. The newspapers, the media, he was on TV. He was being interviewed. He was, you know, uh, on the radio and just talking about the gospel. And, and he was giving his message out, not just at the stadium every night, but, but uh, through all these other media outlets and things. Well, this really prompted one man to write a letter to the daily newspaper there in Melbourne. And this letter, listen, I think clearly expresses the attitude of a person who is on the broad way to destruction. Just like we've talked about. Here's what he wrote. And I quote. He said, After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television, and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, he said, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. End quote. You know, that's a sad letter. But the truth is that that man understood the choices. He just made the wrong one. He chose the broad way and not the narrow way. The tragedy is that multitudes are on the same road with him. And even more tragic, they think they are headed for heaven and will stand before Jesus one day, which he talks about in verses 21 to 23, which we'll study next time, what that scene is going to be like. For those people who thought they were on the right way, but actually were on the broad way, instead they've been victims of a satanic deception that will end up with their eternal destruction. So, the Lord Jesus Christ is giving a warning. And, you know, I admonish people, and I talk to church people mostly. I admonish people in church constantly to examine themselves to make sure, as Paul said, you're really in the faith. Uh, Peter said that. Paul said, judge yourselves, and you won't need to be judged by God. Today, 
you have a chance to judge yourself. Look at your heart. Do I really believe in Christ? Am I just giving him lip service? I believe facts about him, but have I really made him my Lord? You know, where he now has control of my life? These are very important questions. This is the day to answer those questions, to grapple with them. If you die, there's no other chance. And we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks. We'll get to that section because it's very important that we understand. It was very important to Jesus that everyone who heard his words examine their own hearts to see if they were really playing games or they were genuine. I leave that to you to wrestle with. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the fact that you came to tell us the truth, Lord. You came to bear witness of the truth that through you all men might be saved. And Lord, we are living in a day of great apostasy, great deception, even in the church. Satan has worked in the hearts of people who go to church, and these are evangelical churches who have convinced them that they really don't have to change the way they live. They can still live with their boyfriends and girlfriends. They can still, you know, cheat at their businesses and and, and, and live immorally and so on and so forth. And it really doesn't matter because they're saved by grace. What your word teaches, if we really are saved, it will change the way we live. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would touch every heart here this morning. That nobody would take their salvation for granted, but would really challenge themselves. Do I really believe? Or am I really just playing a game? Has my life been changed do I take up my cross, deny myself to follow Jesus? It, do I have the heart of a true disciple? And Lord, if they don't, work in their hearts that they would right now, today, before this day is done, fall on their knees, repent, and receive you, Lord, in truth. We thank you, Lord. We just love you. We, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.